0: Been waiting a long, long time for this episode. Well, not even just this one. I've got a multi-part podcast series of sorts here for Records and Riffs, and this is the first installment. Twenty years ago, in July of 2002, Dave Matthews Band released its fourth major label offering entitled "Busted Stuff." It was highly anticipated, something that was two and a half years in the making at the time. But there is a complicated backstory. Later in this multi-part series, we'll get to the making of Busted Stuff, but before we can talk about Busted Stuff, we must talk about what was supposed to be Busted Stuff before Busted Stuff became Busted Stuff. You follow? Because stuff, a lot of it got, well, busted. If you're a veritable DMB fan and you've come to listen to this podcast, you're going to know the premise. You're going to know some of the story, but not all of the story. That's what these next few shows are for. But if you're not that much of a DMB fan and you're here anyway, first of all, thank you. These interviews and this particular project of helping add some documentation to arguably the biggest fork in the road decision of DMB's existence. And really one of the bigger sagas of record making of the past 25 years in American music. This has been something of an earnest pursuit for me for a while. Uh, but I'll save my quick soliloquy on that and the why of it all at the start of part two. But if DMB is not your thing, uh, but music stories, how records get made, why bands get into tiffs, why the artistic process can get messy—if that stuff is more up your alley—then I think I've got a few things in store here that will keep your attention. In the process, you'll get to learn a bit more about one of the more curious and semi-mysterious albums that never came to be. Uh, before we get to interviewing, though, some prelude, some context, some scene-setting. I wanted to. Give frames of reference for those listening to this podcast that aren't as familiar with the history of the band and at least pave the way toward what happened in 2000 and 2001 and then in 2002. On December 19th, 1998, DMB played the last of its 114 concerts in that year. The band spent the 90s building up its road muscle, repeatedly verifying its touring bona fides. At the start of the decade... They were booked for rooms as small as frat houses and friends' basements, and at the end of the decade, those rooms were non-rooms. They had no roofs. 70,000-seat football stadiums were the sites of DMB shows up and down the East Coast. They played across the country. They played in Europe. In 1998, DMB's apex as a cultural force in music, and also the biggest behemoth in touring, that began to crest. This apex lasted for approximately... I want to say four years, which is a long time in the music world, and it was prompted in April of 98 with the release of the band's best album before these crowded streets. So, yeah, 114 shows that year. DMB has never played as many concerts, not even 100 or more, in any year since. But that year was a critical one for the group, perhaps. Perhaps the most important year In DMB's history, Streets expanded the band's sound. It validated them as one of the biggest and most interesting groups of the 90s. And I did two damn podcasts on this record previously, so you can go into the feed and listen to all of that. But the reason I bring up Streets in 98 is because it sets the table for the next DMB record, which is our issue at hand. After playing a paltry by DMB standard 63 full band shows in 1999... The group rapped by mid-September and geared up to record its next album. Just like the first three, this one would be produced by, here comes the name, Steve Lillywhite. And why not, right? The esteemed Brit, who's among the more well-regarded music producers in history, guided DMB through its first three major label studio efforts, Under the Table and Dreaming, Crash, and Before the Scry of Streets. He helped produce a sound in the studio that pulled off... What I think is one of the most important factors to DMB's sustained success all these years later, because they were a sinewy yet powerful musty live act, right? This unique quintet of acoustic guitar, bass, a hair-on-fire violinist, a reserved, mysterious, sunglassed horn player who played saxes of all sizes, even the flute sometimes, There was never enough flute, if I'm being honest. And it was those acoustic instruments and their harmonies and counter-harmonies that were all enveloped by this drummer who was absurdly gifted, Carter Beaufort, just out of this galaxy great. So to understand DMB, you probably needed to experience the band in a concert setting. And I do think that the group could have had a a successful enough live act and gotten on for years and years on the road with that. But I, I would maintain that it's actually the band's studio work, and how those first three records sounded and how they were, were arranged that sent them into the stratosphere. Lily White promised the band upon meeting them in the early 90s that he'd be the perfect man for the job. He had to work for it. He had to sell himself over a few other producers that were among the finalists to work with this, you know, this hot new music act, this unusual band coming out of Charlottesville, Virginia. But Lily White got the gig under the table, perfectly captured the spirit of what the band sound was in 94 and introduced the United States to a distinctly sounding band at a time when I mean, think back in the mid 90s, right? When rock, pop, alternative music, a lot of the stuff that was making it out there onto radio had a lot of diversification to it, at least compared to what the 80s had produced and certainly the 70s. When you look at, look at everything that was breaking mainstream um, it was, it was hard to stand out, but at the same time, it seemed more achievable than ever to make it, even as a one-hit wonder, in mainstream American music. DMB somehow still separated itself from the rest because, frankly, it had a lineup unlike anyone else, and Hello!, it had the songs to back it up. On Crash!, the sounds got bigger. That album still reigns as DMB's best-selling release in the group's history. Streets was a beast, the first album to go number one upon its release. And really, one of the crowning achievements of Lily White's career in the studio, uh, DMB's studio output from the '90s, I think, I think, I think it had a pull and a production to it that made the songs appealing, the hits radio friendly enough without being cookie cutter, and the deeper cuts as rewarding and re-listenable as the mainstream favorites. I think this is really that's really the magic elixir at play here. The songs weren't compromised. The solo sections were given space to breathe. Matthews' songwriting was brought into clearer focus by Lily White's instincts on how to work the board and blend the band's sound in the studio, right? There was an alchemy between band and producer. Of course, Steve would be on board for album number four. So yes, we are here, finally, to talk about the infamous and ultimately doomed Lillywhite White Sessions. DMB convened with him and Lily White's engineer, Steve Harris who would go on to produce busted stuff. And again, more on all of that is coming in a separate episode. Uh, They convened in January of 2000. Over the next few months, the band laid down more than a dozen songs in the studio to varying results. DMB's hardcore fan base was probably at its peak then. It was a combination of these diehards from the early 90s who saw the band in small clubs. They were still lingering around. They were still on scene, if you will. And then there was just armies and armies of newfound fans like yours truly, who joined the fold in 97, 98, 99, and Lily White, to his credit, and the band itself, they, were, they had cleared giving occasional updates from the studio to keep anticipation for the record high because it was being made at a time when, I think back to 20 years ago, like making a record was its own sort of, sort of sport, right? And this dovetailed with a fledgling internet culture that made being a fan feel more communal than ever before. This is before social media and all of that. But if you were a major American artist, uh, you were usually providing a record every 18 months to three years. And at this point, the anticipation for the record just became part of the cycle. It it was baked into the, uh, the PR... Playbook if you will uh, And with the Lily White Sessions Even though they were not called that at the time It was just an unnamed project uh, Certainly uh, there was Well there was frothing going on Let's put it that way uh, The album was not going to have d ringer Tim Reynolds on it Which was a departure from the first three records Plus you know Dave was apparently writing songs on a 12 string That was new What would that sound like But few knew it And despite the occasional Positive update on the progress of the record The songs were stagnant in the eyes and ears of the band Springtime in 2000 came, tour prep took priority, and the band, Lily White and Harris, went their separate ways with intention of gathering back again in Charlottesville in the fall. Oh, by the way, the fact that they were recording this album in their hometown where they live, which they had not done on the previous records, was a significant factor, uh, and really a debilitating factor, as we'll learn on, uh, on the next couple of episodes there. But at the time, it was, let's just put this project down for a little bit Then we'll come back with renewed energy in the fall with perspective and time and distance and all that affords. It never got to that point in the middle of the band's 2000 summer tour, as the group was playing many of the songs that had had plumbed through in the studio months earlier, the decision was made to hit reboot on everything. Lily White was unceremoniously fired. The band decided it would determine its next steps at the end of the tour. Now the sands of time has softened this somewhat over the years, but the news landing that DMB and Lily White were not going to work together after all to complete the band's fourth record was a significant event. Really, for the first time, it signaled disharmony in the DMB machine in a way that had never really been revealed or indicated before. It was a shock to the throngs of the devoted and thirsty folks who were eagerly anticipating the next record. Uh, Lily White's done. Like, how could this? How could this be? What went wrong? What, did we, what are we not getting here? They weren't even in, in the studio at the time that this happened, right? So it was all the more vexing, considering the number of songs from those Lily White Sessions that were played and played well on the band's 2000 Summer Tour, which still ranks among the three or four best tours in the group's history. Here's what Matthews and Beaufort told Entertainment Weekly, which used to be a very popular print magazine. In 2001, again, we're a generation ago at this point, here's what they said about the decision to abandon those sessions. Matthew said, quote, there was a lot of disappointment coming from the record company and management, and the feeling I was getting in the band was just kind of, boy, this is all pretty dark. There was a vibe coming from everybody involved in that it, it's good, but... And I was already feeling, obviously, from the content, dark, and got the feeling that if that's not what everybody wants, still, I think it's some of the best songs I've written, Beaufort said, quote, First of all, I didn't really see his lyrics as being dark simply because I wasn't really paying attention." Beaufort's laughing. Uh, "...because we were concentrating so much on the music. Musically speaking, it wasn't gelling or flowing the way the Dave Matthews band normally flows. The first three months, we only had one or two songs. Things that normally come so natural to us had become the biggest chore on earth. We hated going to the studio. The only time everybody got excited was when it was time to eat." Molly, our cook, is awesome and was the glue that held the whole thing together. If she wasn't there, nobody would have showed up. He's laughing again. We were desperate and needed to find a way out of that musical rut, and it had nothing to do with Steve. It was sad and scary. Finally, I told our A&R guy, look, this is not happening. Now when we listen to it, everything sounds great and the ideas were there, but it was the wrong time for it, end quote. So that's really interesting, and that's perspective from 20 years ago. Now, eventually, these lily white sessions leak. Of course, that's why we're doing this. Uh, But I'll save a few words for that on part two. Part one here is more about talking with Steve Harris for about 30 minutes. Yes, the Lily White stuff is coming. Don't worry. It's been recorded. It's going to be in the feed. If you're listening to this, really, as it's just released, it will be in the feed in just a few days' time here. If you're coming to it after the fact, well, then you're going to see it right next to this episode here for you. But Harris was a part of those sessions. He ultimately became the man entrusted with producing the record that was the replacement for the Lily White sessions. Busted stuff. So one common assumption among people who followed this whole saga is that it was a debacle. There was dysfunction everywhere in the studio back in 2000. But listen to what Steve Harris reveals on this episode. Uh, He basically claims a lot of that's a bit apocryphal. And before we get to Lily White's accounting of what went wrong, before we get to the sessions leaking, the legacy of these sessions, and what became of Busted Stuff... I did talk to Steve Harris first before I talked to Lily White. So, in regard to at least the Lily White sessions, I'm going to run the Harris conversation first, and then we will get into Steve Lily White and all of his thoughts on the next episode. And I hope you appreciate just a you know an admittedly deep dive into just a fascinating time in the history of uh, DMB, but also at a time again. This is just a world away from how we listen to music, what the music business is now versus what it was then. Uh, so many things were different then. And I think having all this distance and separation from it actually um, provides, I think, a, a helpful perspective on all that went down. So with that being said, Steve Harris on this episode, Steve Lillywhite on the next one, and then we will get to just how Busted Stuff came to be uh, in part three. So here's Steve Harris and me talking about the Lilywhite sessions as he remembers it. <laughs> we welcome in an important figure in the history of DMB and Dave Matthews' discography, but he's also worked with the likes of U2, Kaiser Chiefs, Counting Crows, Santana, The Wombats, Aqualung, Ben Queller, and Kodaline I hope I pronounced that correctly. He's been in the music industry since he was 16 years old. He is also a musician and a music programmer beyond all else. He's British, so the quality of this conversation is about to be significantly, significantly elevated. Hello, Steve Harris. It is wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. I have waited years to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Um, Appreciate, appreciate. Okay. So before we get into busted stuff, we have to get into the lily white sessions because without the lily white sessions, there is no busted stuff, at least in the form that we know it to be there. So you were involved throughout that entire process before, right? After you were, you were an engineer on streets and were you, were you going well, streets, to be?
1: Streets was the first thing that I was involved with. But then, I I was actually had a meeting with. I've never met Steve Lillywhite before for the uh, Crash, uh, Crash Crash album, second one. And um, I had a meeting with Steve. I think he was looking for an engineer, and a friend of mine was uh, in the industry. said he's looking for an engineer, so I went out for. A, I was given half an hour meeting with Steve Lillywhite. So what have been? What year would that been? Uh, This was after
0: Crash was made, or in the in the no no for go for Crash. This would have been ninety. This would have been late ninety-five when they were recording the album. Then
1: okay, so so around that time, early time, and he was. He said, "I'll give him half an hour." We lived very close to each other, and um, yeah, so he gave me half an hour in the pub, local to where we lived, and then we ended up in the West End having the nights of all nights. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it ended. I didn't, and I didn't hear from him ever again. You know, for like another two years. So I didn't get the gig, but I, at least I sort of was, that was my first introduction to the Dave Matthews band. And then, um, yeah, two years later, he gave me a call for, do I want to do the Busters, uh, you yeah, know, the um, Before this Scraged Streets album. So that would have been 97. And uh, and I hadn't got a clue who the Dave Matthews band were. I hadn't got a clue, really. I didn't do any research at all. And then I met him in London. To, to, uh, we met up and it was like, oh, yeah, i met up for dinner. Do you want to do it? I said, I'd love to do it. And it was only because it was Steve Lillywhite, you know. I was a young engineer. A young producer, and I was just you know just want to work with the best, you know. And it was like so that's the only reason I said yes was to do you know do you want to do you want to spend three months in Sausalito? Yes, you know at the <laughs> plant. Yes, you know, You know you know you you want to learn from anybody you can you know who you, who you admire. So I literally was on the way to the airport. I thought you know I better check this band out. So I was listening to the CDs. I think I listened to a bit of Crash, a bit of a Under the Table and Dreaming, and it didn't register. I, I was just like, I think the, the only thing I thought was, the drummer's not bad. You know, I think that, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that was my, that was my one sort of thing I took from it. And it's like, you know, you just go with the flow. you know that's, that's it. So I got to San Francisco, I met up with Stephen, it was the day, it was the second night of um, the Bridge Benefit concert, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in, I think, and um, which everyone's playing acoustic. And uh, so I met, the, and I met Dave. And Dave had, had had got the hangover of all hangovers. So my introduction to Dave was at the hotel lobby, so we all travelled to the gig. And what a surly, miserable, no sort of just like you know. But he was in. I didn't realise he was in complete hangover mode. <laughs> right. So I was like, God, oh, this guy's dark. You know, he's like, where well, is weird. And so we went to the gig, and I introduced the band. Hi, 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 hi. And um, I, you know, who was there? there was Alanis was there. Um. Smashing pumpkins, oh Metallica. Mm. We're playing um we're playing Enter Sandman while t- on acoustics, headbanging while sitting on stools. I mean that Amazing. that freaked me out. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is just as we were and then the band, and then you know the Dave Matthews band came on and Steve said, you know, go into the crowd and um, you know walk around and and they played and it literally it was my jaw just dropped. It was like holy shit, this is incredible. It was like, my life changed instantly from there, just like, it was incredible, you know, like, you know, the, well, you know, from not knowing exactly, you know, not knowing what I was getting into, it was just, um, yeah, it was, it was spellbinding. I, I was exhilarating. It was just like, this bandage is just extraordinary. And I'm going into the studio the next day, you know, so that was my introduction. And then, and then we did the Whites. Uh, we did the um, Crowded Streets. And we can get well. I mean, if we could do three hours on that, but
0: I know I already okay. I, I have before, and I might well do it
1: again. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that thing you did with Steve. That your Thank last you. the podcast with Steve, it was brilliant, and I, and I'm listening to it, I was taken back many memories. You know of and and, he, and Steve had got it, and he said, you know, he he was spot on with, you know, that's the way I saw it. You know mm. what Steve was saying was, you know, uh, I mean, he was on fire that session. I think he was extraordinary. You know, he was. And then so was the band, you know. It was yeah. just for me, it was just like this is just incredible. You know, what what I talk about landing on your lap, you know, landing on your feet, just was thrown in your lap. It was just very, very um immense. And um but through that period of time, my relationship with the band was fabulous. You know, I got to know them, they became friends, and me and Dave became very good friends. And, and um so I think the next time round was uh no sorry. Oh no, because I did um I then got did the uh, the call for the Santana record, okay. and I think that uh, that was the um, probably one of the first. Well, that was the first time I had control of the session. You know, I produced that that session, and a year later, I get the call: we're going to go into uh, and do uh, what we call the the Lily White sessions. If you know, Reward, you know it, which album. is
0: what it's known now. I think at the time. Uh, it was referred to as the summer so far sessions. At least that was a report in Rolling Stone at the time. Okay, so you get the call at that point. Are you still in the same role, like number yeah, one so, engineer? Yes. Was- so,
1: engineer Steve's the Steve's the you know, the boss, and right. I'm there as an engineering role, and I'm at the point where I'm crossing over from. I mean, I was definitely producing a lot of stuff in the UK, but then uh, you know again working with Steve Lillywhite and the Dave Matthews Band, I'll just engineer and mix it. It was you know it, it was just a great opportunity, and again it was. And in Charlottesville, and uh, and uh, off we went, you know. But yeah, so I was just brought in as engineer, and uh, and that's that's where we're that's where the start of that session starts. Okay. And I think it, yeah.
0: Let, let's dig into that. So uh, as Steve told me before. He may remember him saying under the table and crash uh, just, you know, I know you weren't there for those, but they were very enthusiastic, energetic, optimistic. Streets was mostly good, but I remember him saying there were like slight fractures and frustrations that began to emerge in crafting that record. You know, don't drink the water took forever to finally finish, et cetera, et cetera. From what you remember with the Lily White session stuff, what was it like from the outset? Band dynamics, songwriting process, produ- uh, production? Was it a little rough from the get-go? Were the first couple of weeks pretty good? This kind of surfaced weeks or months into the process. Kind of take okay. me back to what you remember.
1: Okay. So we started in January. I think it was January. Very early January. And um, if I'm wrong on that, but I think it was just after Christmas. Okay. And um, everyone was in a fantastic mood. Everyone was really positive, as you would be. you have into a whole new thing. And, and of course, they rented out this place, Haunted Hollow, which is now owned by the band, but it was a, and I'm sure this is all on record somewhere else, you know, it was a dance, this guy, this builder built this house, which was big enough for me, Steve and the crew and the, and the chef. And then on the side, it had this huge room and um, a dance hall. I think he had like a little, little stage and it had like little booths and I don't know why you would ever want to build it. But I think this guy just felt like, oh, it's a party room and I've lots of people I don't think he ever used it, but it was a big room. It's probably about a nine, eight to nine foot ceiling, so quite low, very flat, and which is what we'll get to. Side walls, all plasterboard, and there was just a big, but it was a big space. And uh, we set up the first few days we got there, and they brought in this um, all the all the gear. So we on one at one end we were the control room setting with a you know with the speakers, and then we had all the gear to the side, and then. And so the first couple of weeks, I would say, I want to say weeks because we had um, booths built for Dave and Leroy. I mean, these are big, huge wooden booths Mm. with glass, because obviously there's no separation. There's no control room window. We're in the same room as the drums. And it's sonically, it was a mess, which I I think as we go on to the conversation, why it, it sort of, why it sort of fell apart uh that's probably one of the reasons. I'm, I'm sort of going ahead of myself here, but um so yeah, we built these rooms as so there was there was uh, Carter in the middle. Uh and the setup was massive because I think we had we had we had things like um because everyone was on headphones. I, I got all these sort of uh bass um things like the you know, you're on the drums. There's these things on the drums when you kick the bass drum, it rattles your mm-hmm. rattles the seats and it makes it brings the headphone volume down because you're feeling it more than so. I thought well if we're going to work on headphones for two, three, four, five, well, it ended up being six months, you know, if you've got to get the, you know, people on headphones, it's just going to drive you mad. So I had one on, I got one on a Fonzie so you could feel the bass. Well, that's so the big, it was a big setup. And we had these rooms built for Le, Leroy and, um, and Dave, which we thought was a great idea. And it sort of worked for a bit. And the vibe was fantastic and um, stuff was flying down and uh, we got on with it it was everyone was there was i would say uh, the band was in a real happy place you know collectively there was a lot of laughter a lot of positiveness great playing everything was going it was hunky dory it was good it was all it was it was a great start i uh it was difficult for us especially for me as an engineer because there's no window so when i'm getting sounds all i can hear is these drums just like you know you're just everything's you Have to do all your sonics retrospectively when they're not playing, so you have to listen back and go, Okay, you know, where is in your control room someone's playing, you can just make changes and do you they know, get the sound of a so everything was all retrospective. So, but they'd play, and then I'd have to listen to it and go, That doesn't sound right, that sounds right, you know, and it would all be which you can manage, but um, the problem was is one of the problems I felt, and I think, um, is not um hasn't been discussed about why the Lily White Sessions sort of fell apart or went, went south, was, um, you know, we're in this situation, we in headphones all the time, and the Sonics are bad, and, you know, the room we the in is just not conducive to good recording. I'm probably way ahead of here, but no, you might as well get it. I just, I'm just spew out what I say. Um, My biggest problem with that whole session, and I think why... And I've, I've read all the things. Oh, yeah! There were, it was like a summer camp, and everyone was spending loads of time at the studio than in the studio. Um, Out of all my great studios, when they sound great, you can stay in them for hours. You can go work till four or five in the morning, and your ears don't get tired. You're, there's no fatigue because your ears, when you have like lots of reflections and lots of bad sound, your ears have to sort it out. Your brain has to sort it out and try and get rid of all the extra reflections and, and try and get to the thing. And it's called ear fatigue. And that's why uh, some control rooms, people do like home studios and they can't understand why they get, you know, they can't be in there very long and you don't really know, but it, it's because the sounds, your brain's so tired of trying to sort it out. And therefore you just don't want to be there in that situation as much as, you know, you just want to get out. You don't know, you don't know that's the reason, but it just is the reason. And um, so you've got, so in this, in the situation with the, with the Lily white sessions is you've got this loud band in a room. That's the drums don't sound good. You know, the, the, the ceilings really close to the top of the symbols. That's splashing around. The drum sounds don't sound that great. Dave's in a really tight, warm room. He doesn't want to be in that room. Leroy the same. We're all in headphones. I can't hear the sound. And even as a positive and positive, you do that for month after month after month and you just want to be outside and not inside. And even when you're listening back to it as a, you know, pretend, you know, on playback, your ears are still trying to sort out all the reflections that are coming out all over the place. Like, you know, it's, it's, that's why control rooms are built like control rooms. So your sound, you know, that's why you have good control rooms, bad rooms. We had the worst sonic situation that you could possibly have for a top band trying to make it work. Now, sometimes, you know, you two go into a mansion and stuff, and, and I'm sure have their problems, but they, you can sort it out and you can have a, a lucky, a, you know, a better luck. But for our Pacific situation, and I think it's one of the biggest reasons that the workflow fell down and people got down on the session, and I think that's one of the biggest things that's never been discussed before, is that we were just in a sonic mess, and you just didn't want to be there. At the start, the vibe was fantastic. And also the going through, everyone really tried to keep it going. And I, you know, but it was just everyone was just falling outside and, and hanging out. The weather was great, the place was amazing, we had toys to play out, you know. And there was a lot of, you know, riding on quad bikes and, and that all happened and to a point where it was much more fun being outside than inside.
0: So basically they they wanted to record this record to follow up streets they had you know a studio built but it wasn't built to spec it was, no, it's not, it was it's just a room you're just just talking a about one room big room and uh, uh, was there a... really
1: bad fundamentals to it you, you know if you were going to go and rec- if you said to me now with 20 more years experience shall we record in this room it'd be like well, yeah, we're ain't. we not touching this room you know if yeah. i had the strength of character all the all my or if my power pace was you know if i was steve Lillywhite, you know i would have gone I really don't want to record it. Yet. I know it's at home, but this is a bad room to record it. But, you know, that's not, sometimes you, sometimes no one wants to be negative. You know, you've got a situation, the situation just grows, you know, we'll do it in Charlottesville, close to home, it'd be good. And I even think Steve's on record saying he didn't really want to do it in Charlottesville. I really yes, didn't he, told, he
0: actually said that when we went yeah, to yeah. Yes. previously. Uh, yeah.
1: So this compounded his, uh, his problems that he had. Uh, you know, I was just trying to make the best of best of what i can and and to that and and i remember coming home after before we found out that it was being cancelled i came home to my home studio where i am now and um put on the cd and it was just like this sounds absolutely terrible you know it sounds bad it's bad it's really it's weak it's it's got sonic issues that i find really you know, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that the music wasn't speaking. I mean, you know yeah, the the music was there, but the sonics were just like, oh my god, this is this needs sorting out in the mix. You know, it's like, uh, which we never got to mix. But you
0: know, when was the? I want to follow up with some more of that. But uh, out of curiosity, when was the last time you actually listened to the Lily White sessions in full? Has it been recent? Has it been years and years? When do you think you okay, actually? I think
1: I I think I've listened to the CD once or twice when I come home and just. Like okay, we'll sort it out when we go back to Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that that we weren't going to continue, right. so so I had a, a break from it, and and I literally I found a couple of tracks on uh, YouTube literally six months ago and listened to them and it was like, nah. wow. uh, I had no I had no emotional attachment to them or all. Any uh, like all oh, these have aged well. You know, yeah. what? I haven't <laughs> I haven't had that feeling in any way at all. It was just like.
0: What's, so. Uh, okay, so I want your perspective on this then, because I think I can I can understand what you're saying with the the quality of the songs. Like it definitely, when you listen to it, it does not sound like a finished product. But there has been with with the Lily White sessions recordings particularly because it's there's been plenty of mythology around it, plenty of mystery around it, plenty of unresolved issues and questions that haven't been answered around it. I think uh, for it to have been leaked and discovered in its relatively raw form it just kind of takes on more of that element to it where people are i think it's 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 more mythologized because the songwriting in it is undeniable the compositions are undeniable even if the production value isn't up there so it's so interesting to hear you talk about how you really didn't find much (laughs) much worth salvaging from those sessions but at the same time it's it's almost like the way that those songs were recorded and how they sonically uh, you know, met the ear of the DMB fan base who was just coming when. Remember when Steve, when they, when fans heard this, they had just heard the super glossy, you know, very high sheen of everyday, and then you get this kind of raw. It's just, it's almost like six to midnight kind of feel there. So it's interesting to hear you describe how unsatisfactory that was when, for I think for a lot of fans, the way that it sounded, even though it had an inferior, an inferiority complex to it in some ways, that was the appealing factor with it. Um, I
1: think with DMB fans, I think there's, um, you know, it's like probably me listening to uh, the, the the recent Get Back uh, documentary of uh, of those guys in the studio. It's like I'm I'm just a sucker for anything with the Beatles, you know. It's like, and and to have that, you know, fifty years on, I'm fifty four years old, man. Like, you know, I've got to, like. And I can hear some fresh stuff, and I can see them in the I, I You know, bring. I want. I want another fifty hours of it. I could watch all fifty hours of the uncut stuff. You know, if you're a fan, you're a fan. So there is that for for the Lily White sessions, for the for the you know for the for the fan base. Now I'm sure if you you played the you know the the, the guy who buys five albums a year and listens to uh, and, and you know and one of them is the Dave Matthews Lily White sessions, I bet you would be like going, <laughs> you know, it's like it would it would. You know, it doesn't stand up as a as a sounding like a like a, what you would reckon a record would sound like. Doesn't mean that the music the music spoke, the music spoke as musically as in in buckets as as it always does with those guys. You know. um But sonically, it was um, you know, it was a low point. Uh, and, I, and 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 um, it was a battle. The whole the whole studio setup was a it was a battle. But but there was fun time. It was good. There was, there was times when it was really. The thing is as well, in the when we were in the studio. The conclusions you get to are because are the conclusions sonically you get to that sound good in the studio, so it's all good, you know. Until you take it out, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't come out. So you know, we had many times. Steve would bring people in, and we'd dance around to the tracks, and he's getting a feel of it, and it, it sounded great where we were. We turn it up loud, and the, so the music was the music was always good. The music was always good, I thought, but uh, but it's, it's just was just you know, flat.
0: There are a couple cuts from the lily white sessions where fans m- plenty of them still think that the that the recordings still stand tall um but i don't know when you did your youtube dive and you listened to a few uh the recording of jtr i would say the recording of bartender the recording of captain which got reworked for busted stuff um but having said that i'm going to run down the track list for lily white sessions before we get to busted stuff here Okay. Here's the 12 in order. And I want you to say, just two or three songs, two or three recording sessions, which maybe to you, the band and you guys thought best about or you thought was the best in that, in that moment there. So in order, it would have gone Busted Stuff, Gray Street, Digging a Ditch. Again, this is Lily White Sessions. Sweet Yay. Up and Down, JTR, Big Eyed Fish, Grace is Gone, Captain, Bartender, Monkey Man, forgotten classic, Kit Kat Jam, and then Raven. Any, any of those kind of stand out as, uh, as to how they recorded enthusiasm then? Or even if do you I think had, most of it wasn't great as a recording if, if, if you had to pick no, one I, or two best? When I say
1: like, it's a, the vibe in the studio was fantastic. The band were totally, you know, when the tracks were going down, we'd all listen back to them. It was like, and, they, and it was like, this is, you know, this is great. And everyone was really positive and into it. There was no, I had no inclination, even when the phone call came, that there was problems or it was being cancelled, that there was a problem with from the band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, they were there every day and everyone was doing their parts and overdubs and there was a, there was a fantastic enthusiasm for it. So it was a little bit of a shock when I got the phone call. Uh, I was back in England. Who I was call- actually, was
0: Who called you? Yeah. Uh, Bruce Full. Okay.
1: Bruce Full called me and um, uh, to say that it was off. And uh, so... I was shocked and disappointed because six months of your life and you've got no output, I've got no output in my career, you know, just all that wasted time. Um, That was a a, a personal level, but um, there was no way I remember looking going, oh, yeah, the band aren't very happy or, yeah, this is not going well, you know, and I was with them every day. So I, I, I never got that. That uh, that vibe that there was things were going south. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's all retrospective. The going south thing is a retrospective sort of, you know. I remember leaving there. In uh, it was just it was just when they were going to start their stadium tour. I think they were going to start at the giant stadium. And uh, so, and I'm going say see you see you in September. You know, or see you when the tour's over to carry on or whatever, whatever we decide. yeah, see you like see you like you know blah, blah blah. So there was none of that reason. There's, I didn't get any information at all that there was any sort of band revolt in what was going down That's all, and I was with them all the time. So yeah, um, so of songs, if you want to go through this, the, the uh, I've I can't really sort of detail um, any of those songs of, of, of the standout. I just remember that, it, that, that they all went down as they normally do. Yeah, you know, by jam after jam after jam after jam, and then it developed, 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 and uh, and then. And then Steve goes digging, you know, and we, and off we go and the band disappear and we just sit there and he digs and we put it together. And, and, uh, and that, which was exactly the same as on the crowded streets. You know, it's just a continuation of our work in, uh, our work, There there's nothing different to that. Um, I do remember, Actually, I don't, there's nothing stand out out of those songs where I thought look, the funniest thing I ever thought there was this one song, I can't remember which one it was and. They were discussing the groove. We were all sitting around the control room. I remember it was so funny. Um, and I cannot remember. It may be just a jam that they were working on that hasn't even been recorded, but, or, you know, didn't make it into the... as a master bar. I can't remember. But um, I think Leroy was, like, talking about, you know, where the one is on the beat, you know. And then Carter goes, no, 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 that's that's not the one. The one's here. Hmm. And then Boyd goes, no, 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 my one's over here. Yeah. So they span the plane together so tight. Yeah, they're all thinking completely different it was just like they're just yeah, mental. They're so funny. It's such a funny band. They um so it all went down really sort of normally. They they just when I say normal for them, it's they they it's all live, they all jam, uh, you know, and it just and then when they decide to get tired or they've bad enough, that's when it all you know, and Steve Steve went digging to see where see what we've got. Uh, uh-huh.
0: F- fair enough. uh um, oh, yeah. Sorry,
1: if you want more detail, I'll get. Yeah, listen, that we ago. can
0: we can still we can still. <laughs> go, long, I might I might split this ago. into two two different episodes here.
1: I can remember um the, the the track that we'd made through the woods for the for the quad bikes. That was probably more. You know, I can't remember. I just got it was more. We were playing frisbee. We were doing. It. I can't remember. I cannot remember. What do you? I mean? remember. I had. I remember. I had a great time doing it.
0: The what do you mean the track um, through the woods with the quad bike? Yeah, we
1: well we had that. We we 180 acres, and we got like you know quad yeah. bikes, and we were timing each other around, and you know it was, a, it was a disaster waiting to happen. But we were, I don't know, it was a. I sort of think I, I can't remember much detail of 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 each track. It was just a body of a body of work which I, I've, I've almost sort of forgotten about. I mean, you know, to spend all that time and listen to it twice,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and 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 disassociate my emotion from it is pretty a big deal because I'm not actually the opposite I'm not like I and mean, I think Steve Steve does something again parks the bit parks it I I you know I I get to if I do something I know it's good I I listen to it and I end up being a fan of it and I forget making it and I love it you know because mm-hmm. it's, and I think that's a successful record for me if I've if been involved with something but um uh, no, I can't. There's, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you on that on that uh, thing. But I can't really uh, tell you any much detail because there was because it was all the same. They amalgamate into one track. You know, it's like that. Everything was set up the same. You press record. Each track went down the same. There was no real invention of per track. It was just them playing it. And and uh, I don't know whether they were. I don't know whether they were. Uh, you know, if Steve was going to take these this this album i i think he you know i don't know how much more he was going to do after or how much he i can't speak for him or how much he felt he had to do um but all i remember it just been a, a big disappointment when i came when i brought it home and uh yeah so i wasn't surprised when it got cancelled i was surprised no i wasn't i wasn't surprised it wasn't as shock as i thought it as it should be but um, i was disappointed yeah with, ev- with everything i was disappointed with what we had i was disappointed with the uh with that that Steve, we we couldn't finish it. It was just it was just a, you know, a sad six months, you know, to but it was brilliant when I was there. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah.
0: It does. Um, last question on this before we transition to the bust the stuff sessions. Would you have had conversations in person on the phone with Lily White in the days or weeks before you got the call from Blues Floor? No. Uh, Bruce no. Okay, so you, no, okay. No.
1: No, no, no. We we I think when you spent six months somebody fourteen hours a day. You just want to, yeah.
0: You know, I just didn't um, know if there, yeah. I was just curious about whether he had gotten the sense, or if, if any handed me tip, no, not to at you at all. all. No, that no
1: I, okay. I, I was on holiday. I was visiting my sister in Switzerland. I was out at a restaurant, and the call came. I could see it was America. I said, "I've got to take this." I remember where I was: Lake Geneva.
0: This is the um, early to, day. You have a cell phone on you. Uh, this is like
1: two thousand. Yeah, 2000. I been, oh, yeah I, I'd in ninety-five. Or oh so my god! Much. Look at you. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. It was. Well, I bet you don't even know that I was involved with the
0: Everyday album. I don't. I did not know that. Yeah. In, yes. In what capacity? Yeah, so,
1: uh I was the. I was. I was. Uh, booked to engineer.
0: Oh, look at you. Okay. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so it. I mean, the story makes sense when you get to the buses stuff, which I hope presume we're going to get. We so, are
0: getting. We are literally just about to get there. Yes.
1: Okay. So you know, did carry Streets did the same thing with a. Um, uh, Lillywhite sessions, and then Glenn Ballard. You know they're going into LA, and I get a phone call. The band really would like you, you're going in with Glenn Ballard. The band would really like you to be there. And I think it was just like a, a safety net, a transition. You know, somebody to transition through to the new, because all they all they'd known was four albums with Steve Lillywhite, and I'd only come in on the on a, on a really good one. And then you know, there's the the you know, and I was really good friends with the band. I got on with them really well. And uh, so, and I got a phone for phone call from uh, Glenn. Hey man, hey you, like, you know yeah this is going to be great. And I said oh this is fantastic. Thanks so much for you know for for wanting to use. Said, no no you're world class. But blah, like, you're gonna you'd be great, fantastic and um, uh, great. So see you in LA. So went over to LA and we met him and he's like hey we listened to the tracks because Dave and him had, had like some sort of writing right. frenzy and. Um, uh, we get to the studio. I went to shoot, and um, and there's a guy there, and I walk in. And I go, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, and uh, I said, "Are you are you the Pro Tools engineer?" He went, "No, no, well, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm the engineer on the session." I went, "Oh," And you know. Good long story short, it was Glenn's guy. Yeah. And uh, and he said, "Oh, we could work together." I was like, "Okay, well, we'll try and make that work." It's a one man job, you know, and uh, and I quite very quickly realised that um, one you know, Glenn must have, I mean, bless him, but it must have just gone with the, the vibe of, yeah, I'll get, yeah, get the English guy in. He's the band's friend. And, you know, maybe just wanted to get the, you know, not, again, not cause any, you know, just not to rock the boat, but he had no intention of, of, of letting me really, you know, he got his own guy. And and rightly so, you know, he's just, I wish somebody had just said, I mean, it's really funny. I mean, I so, I went to LA, I, you know, I'd, I mean, in fact, Bruce Fall said to me, he said, I said Look, so I, I had a walk with Dave down Sunset, and it, I was like, Dave, I've got to go home. I said, you know, I can't spend another eight weeks of not doing anything for myself. You know, get, you know, I put a year on hold for you guys, and nothing's come out. It's not, you know, I was the young producer. I wanted to make, I wanted to, you know, to uh, create. And um, and, and Bruce Law said, oh, I just have a, a paid holiday. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sitting around LA for eight weeks just watching somebody else. His, I mean, you know, studios are boring when you're yeah. not working, they're the, they're the worst places to be. So I got on a plane and went home and this is testament to the, how brilliant the, uh, the Dave Matthews is, Dave Matthews family is and how Corrin and, um, red light are. They paid me my whole fee for the whole set, you know, and and I was there for like eight days, nine days. And, um, and you know, they're upset that I was upset, but I was, you know, just, but they're so cool. And you know and, and they've always been, and they still are, they are, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful organization. And, um, uh, and have treated me very
0: well. My thanks to Steve Harris for hopping in and doing a little bit of reminiscing about that. He has plenty more to say and some interesting things to reveal when we get to everything attached to him being selected to produce Busted Stuff and his relationship there. Uh, plus some good DMB stories not even necessarily attached to making that record. So that is a goodie, I promise you, once we get to that episode. But before we get to that, this is part one. Part two, the main course, if you will, Steve Lillywhite talking about the Lillywhite sessions and doing so for the first time at length on the record and reminiscing on what was working, what was not, how his recollection of the sessions might differ from Harris. I, mean, I thought it was pretty interesting. Harris said the band was getting along great. This idea that the band was headed in some sort of direction where there was, you know, fissures or there could be a fracture, that's not really reflective of the reality of the situation there. It was more about uh, the environment they were recording in, some of the songs, but um, peer-to-peer, member-to-member, as Harris remembers it, that's not really what it was at all. And I thought it was important to get that corrected for the record, if you will, because I think some DMB fans have always thought if they made the Lily White sessions, but that meant the band was headed toward this dark place where maybe they wouldn't have survived it as a group or gone on hiatus. Like, would it have been worth it? Well, we're we're coming to learn that that's not really the place they were in. It was more about the songs themselves and not the relationship of the band members at the time. The band was in a very good place. Um, So who knows what would have happened if they had been able to finish it in the state that it was in with those songs. Uh, Lily White will provide plenty more perspective on this. So look for that in the next episode. Only a couple more days now, and then we finally get to unwrap that present. Thank you again for listening. If you have not subscribed to Records and Riffs, do me a favor. If this is the first episode you've come to find, you know, give it a good little rating. Five stars never hurt anybody. And subscribe if you're able to. I do want to get this podcast on the other streaming podcast services. So I'll look to get that done relatively soon here. But yes, I know. The Lily White Conversation. You've been waiting for it, I'm aware, and that is coming next. Part two of this busted lily-white collaborative retrospective. Talk to you soon.